There is none like that. Give it to me. Alas, alas, how had the mighty fallen. Again, quoting V.W. Newton, Surely it augured ill for David that his hand, that hand which had placed the sword of Goliath in the sanctuary of the God of Israel, that hand which had once taken the pebble and the sling as the symbol of its strength, because it trusted in the Lord of hosts, it augured ill that his hand should be the first to withdraw the giant weapon from its resting place in order that he might transfer to it a measure at least of that confidence which he was withdrawing from God. How different the condition of David now and on the day of Goliath's fall. Then, trusting in the God of Israel and associated with Israel, he had gone out in owned weakness, but now, forsaking Israel and the land of Israel, he went forth armed with the sword of Goliath to seek friendship and alliance with the Philistines, the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. Unquote. Thus, David now set forth provisioned temporarily at least, and armed. But at what a cost! The unsuspecting priest had believed David's lies and assured by him that Saul had commissioned him, feared not the presence of Doeg the king's servant. Verse 7. But he paid dearly for listening against his better judgment to David's falsehoods. That treacherous Edomite informed Saul, chapter 22, verses 9 and 10, and later he was ordered by the enraged king to seek a fearful vengeance. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priest and slew on that day fourscore and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And now... The city of the priests smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, and oxen and asses and sheep. First Samuel twenty-two eighteen and 19. Such were some of the fearful results of David's lies as he afterwards acknowledged to the one remaining child of Ahimelech. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. 1 Samuel 22.22 May it please the Holy Spirit to powerfully move both writer and hearer to lay to heart the whole of this solemn incident that we may daily pray with increasing earnestness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Arthur Pink Continued in the September Studies He will by means like these thy stubborn temper break, soften thy heart 
by due degrees and make thy spirit meek. Study number four. Profiting from the word. The scriptures and love. This article brings to a close the present series. In them we have sought to point out some of the ways by which we may ascertain whether or no our reading and searching of the scriptures is really being blessed to our souls. Many are deceived on this matter, mistaking an eagerness to acquire knowledge for a spiritual love of the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 And, assuming that additions to their store of learning is the same thing as a growth in grace. A great deal depends upon the end or aim we have before us when turning to God's Word. If it be simply to familiarize ourselves with its contents, and become better versed in its details, it is likely that the garden of our souls will remain barren. But if, with the prayerful desire to be rebuked and corrected by that word, to be searched by the Spirit, to conform our hearts and lives to its holy requirements, then we may expect a divine blessing. In the preceding articles, we have endeavored to single out the vital things by which we may discover what progress we are making in personal godliness. Various criteria have been given, which it becomes both writer and hearer to honestly measure himself by. We have pressed such tests as, Am I acquiring a greater hatred of sin? and a practical deliverance from its power and pollution? Am I obtaining a deeper acquaintance with God and His Christ? Is my prayer life healthier, my good works more abundant, my obedience fuller and gladder? Am I more separated from the world in my affections and ways? Am I learning to make a right and profitable use of God's promises and so delighting myself in Him that His joy is my daily strength? Unless I can truthfully say that these are, in some measure, my experience, then it is greatly to be feared that my study of the Scriptures is profiting me little or nothing. It hardly seems fitting that these articles should be concluded until one has been devoted to the consideration of Christian love. The extent to which this spiritual grace is or is not being cultivated and regulated affords another index to the measure in which my perusal of God's word is helping me spiritually. No one can read the scriptures with any measure of attention without discovering how much they have to say about love, and therefore it behooves each one of us to prayerfully and carefully ascertain whether or no his or her love 
be really a spiritual one, and whether it be in a healthy state and is being exercised aright. It is very easy to be mistaken upon this important point, and therefore it is the part of wisdom to make a close investigation of the same. The subject of Christian love is far too comprehensive to consider all its varied phases within the compass of a single paper. Properly, we should begin with contemplating the exercise of our love toward God and His Christ. But as this has been at least touched upon in preceding articles, we shall now waive it. Much, too, might be said about the natural love which we owe to our fellow men who belong to the same human family as we do. But there is less need to write thereon than upon what is now before our mind. Here we propose to confine our attention to spiritual love unto the brethren, the brethren of Christ. Number one. We are profited from the word when we perceive the great importance of Christian love. Nowhere is this brought out more emphatically than in 1 Corinthians 13. There the Holy Spirit tells us that though a professing Christian can speak fluently and eloquently upon divine things and has not loved, He is like metal, which, though it makes a noise when struck, is lifeless. That though he can prophesy, understand all mysteries and knowledge, and have faith which brings miracles to pass, but be lacking in love, he is a spiritual non-entity. Yea, that though he be so benevolent as to give away all his worldly possessions to feed the poor and yield his body to a martyr's death and have not love, it profits him nothing. How high a value is here placed upon love and how essential for me to make sure I possess it. Said our Lord, By this shall all know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. John 13.35 By Christ's making it the badge of Christian discipleship, we see again the great importance of love. It is an essential test of the genuineness of our profession. We cannot love Christ, but we must love His brethren for they are all bound up in the same bundle of life. 1 Samuel 25, 29, with him. Love to those whom he has redeemed is a sure evidence of spiritual and supernatural love to the Lord Jesus himself. Where the Holy Spirit has wrought a supernatural birth, he will draw forth that nature into exercise. He will produce in the hearts and lives and conduct of the saints supernatural graces, one of which is loving each other for Christ's sake. Number two, we are profited from the word 
when we learn to detect the sad perversions of Christian love. As water will not rise above its own level, so the natural man is incapable of understanding, still less appreciating that which is spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Therefore, we should not be surprised when unregenerate professors mistake human sentimentality and carnal pleasantries for spiritual love. But sad is it to see some of God's own people living on so low a plane that they confuse human amiability and affability with this queen of the Christian graces. While it be true that spiritual love is characterized by meekness and gentleness, yet is it something very different from and vastly superior to the courtesies and kindnesses of the flesh. How many a doting father has withheld the rod from his children under the mistaken notion that real affection for them and the chastising of them were incompatible. How many a foolish mother who disdained all corporeal punishment has boasted that love rules in her home. One of the most trying experiences of the writer in his extensive travels has been to spend a season in homes where the children have been completely spoiled. It is a wicked perversion of the word love to apply it to such moral laxity and parental looseness. But this same pernicious idea rules the minds of many people in other connections and relations. If a servant of God rebukes their fleshly and worldly ways, if he presses the uncompromising claims of God, he is at once charged with being lacking in love. Oh, how terribly are multitudes deceived by Satan on this important subject. Number three, we are profited from the word when we are taught the true nature of Christian love. Christian love is a spiritual grace abiding in the soul of the saints alongside of faith and hope. 1 Corinthians 13.13 13. It is a holy disposition wrought in them when they are regenerated. 1 John 5.1 It is nothing less than the love of God shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 5. It is a righteous principle which seeks the highest good of others. It is the very reverse of that principle of self-love and self-seeking which is in us by nature. It is not only an affectionate regard for all who bear the image of Christ, but also a powerful desire to promote their welfare. It is not a fickle sentiment which is easily offended, but an abiding dynamic which many waters of cold indifference or floods of disappreciation can neither quench nor drown. Song of Solomon 8, 7 
though coming far short in degree, it is the same in essence as his of whom we read, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John 13, 1 There is no safer and surer way of obtaining a right conception of the nature of Christian love than by making a thorough study of its perfect exemplification in and by the Lord Jesus. When we say a thorough study, we mean the taking a comprehensive survey of all that is recorded of him in the four Gospels and not the limiting of ourselves to a few favorite passages or incidents. As this is done, we discover that his love was not only benevolent and magnanimous, thoughtful and gentle, unselfish and self-sacrificing, patient and unchanging, but many other elements also entered into it. Love could deny an urgent request, John 11.6, rebuke his mother, John 2.4, use a whip, John 2.15, severely upbraid his doubting disciples, Luke 24.25, and denounce hypocrites, Matthew 23.13-33. Love can be stern, Matthew 16.23, yea, angry, Mark 3.5. Spiritual love is a holy thing. It is faithful to God. It is uncompromising toward all that is evil. Number four, we are profited from the word when we discover that Christian love is of divine communication. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3.14 Samuel Pierce said, Love to the brethren is the fruit and effect of a new and supernatural birth wrought in our souls by the Holy Spirit as the blessed evidence of our having been chosen in Christ by the Divine Father before the world was. To love Christ and His and our brethren in Him is continual to that divine nature He hath made us the partakers of by His Holy Spirit. This love of the brethren must be a peculiar love, such as none but the regenerate are the subjects of, and which none but they can exercise, or the apostle would not have so particularly mentioned it. It is such as those who have it not are in a state of unregeneracy. So it follows, He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Unquote. Love for the brethren is far, far more than a finding agreeable the society of those whose temperaments are similar to or whose views accord with my own. It pertains not to mere nature, 
but is a spiritual and supernatural thing. It is the heart being drawn out to those in whom I perceive something of Christ. Thus it is very much more than a party spirit. It embraces all in whom I can see the image of God's Son. It is therefore a loving them for Christ's sake, for what I see of Christ in them. It is the Holy Spirit within attracting and alluring me with Christ, indwelling my brethren and sisters. Thus, real Christian love is not only a divine gift, but is altogether dependent upon God for its invigoration and exercise. We need to pray daily that the Holy Spirit will call forth into action and manifestation toward both God and His people, that love which He has shed abroad in our hearts. Number five. We are profited from the Word when we rightly exercise Christian love. This is done not by seeking to please our brethren and ingratiate ourselves in their esteem, but when we truly seek their highest good. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. 1 John 5, 2 What is the real test of my personal love to God Himself? It is my keeping of His commandments. See John chapter 14, verses 15, 21, and 24, and chapter 15, verses 10 and 14. The genuineness and strength of my love to God is not to be measured by my words nor by the lustiness with which I sing His praises, but by my obedience to His word. The same principle holds good in my relations with my brethren. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. If I am glossing over the faults of my brethren and sisters, if I am walking with them in a course of self-will and self-pleasing, then I am not loving them. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Leviticus 19.17 Love is to be exercised in a divine way and never at the expense of my failing to love God. In fact, it is only when God has His proper place in my heart that spiritual love can be exercised by me toward my brethren. True spiritual love does not consist in gratifying them, but in pleasing God and helping them and I can only help them in the path of God's commandments. Petting and pampering each other is not brotherly love. Exhorting one another to press forward in the race that is set before us, and speaking words enforced by 
the example of our daily walk, which will encourage them to look off into Jesus, would be much more helpful. Brotherly love is to be a holy thing and not a fleshly sentiment or a loose indifference as to the path we are treading. God's commandments are expressions of His love as well as of His authority, and to ignore them, even while seeking to be kindly affectioned one to another, is not love at all. The exercise of love is to be in strict conformity to the revealed will of God. We are to love in the truth. Third John 4. Number 6. We are profited from the Word when we are taught the varied manifestations of Christian love. To love our brethren and manifest the same in all kinds of ways is our bounden duty. But at no point can we do this more truly and effectually and with less affectation and ostentation than by having fellowship with them at the throne of grace. There are brethren and sisters in Christ in the four corners of the earth about the details of whose trials and conflicts, temptations and sorrows I know nothing. Yet I can express my love for them and pour out my heart before God on their behalf by earnest supplication and intercession. In no other way can the Christian more manifest his affectionate regard toward his fellow pilgrims than by using all his interests in the Lord Jesus Christ in their behalf, entreating his mercies and favors unto them. Whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 1 John 3, 17 and 18 Many of God's people are very poor in this world's goods. Sometimes they wonder why this is. It is a great trial unto them. One reason why the Lord permits this is that others of His saints may have their compassion drawn out and minister to their temporal needs from the abundance with which God has furnished them. Real love is intensely practical. It considers no office too mean, no task too humbling, where the sufferings of her brother can be relieved. When the Lord of love was here upon earth, he had thought for the bodily hunger of the multitude and the comfort of his disciples' feet. But there are some of the Lord's people so poor that they have very little indeed to share with others. What then may they do? Why, make the spiritual concerns of all the saints their own, 
interest themselves on their behalf at the throne of grace. We know by our own cases and circumstances what the feelings, sorrows, complaints of the saints must be the subjects of. We know from sad experience how easy it is to give way to a spirit of discontent and murmuring. But we also know how when we have cried unto the Lord for His quieting hand to be laid upon us, and when He has brought some precious promise to our remembrance, what peace and comfort have come to our heart. Then let us beg Him to be equally gracious to all His distressed saints. Let us seek to make their burdens our own, and weep with them that weep, as well as rejoice with them that rejoice. Thus shall we express real love for their persons in Christ by entreating their Lord and our Lord to remember them with everlasting kindness. This is how the Lord Jesus is now manifesting His love to His saints. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 He makes their cause and care His own. He is entreating the Father on their behalf. None is forgotten by Him. Every lone sheep is born upon the heart of the Good Shepherd. Thus, by expressing our love to the brethren in daily prayers for the supply of their various needs, we are brought into fellowship with our great High Priest. Not only so, but the saints will be endeared to us thereby, our very praying for them as the beloved of God will increase our love and esteem for them as such. We cannot carry them on our hearts before the throne of grace without cherishing in our own hearts a real affection for them. The best way of overcoming a bitter spirit to a brother who has offended is to be much in prayer for him. Number seven. We are profited from the word when we are taught the proper cultivation of Christian love. Space will only permit us to suggest one or two rules for this. First, recognizing at the outset that just as there is much in you, in me, which will severely try the love of the brethren, so there will be not a little in them to test your love. Forbearing one another in love, Ephesians 4.2, is the great admonition on this subject which each of us needs to lay to heart. It is surely striking to note that the very first quality of spiritual love named in 1 Corinthians 13 is love suffereth long, verse 4. Second, the best way to cultivate any virtue or grace is to exercise it. Talking and theorizing about it avails nothing unless it be carried into action. 
Many are the complaints heard today about the littleness of the love which is being manifested in many places. That is all the more reason why I should seek to set a better example. Suffer not the coldness and unkindness of others to dampen your love, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12.21 Prayerfully ponder 1 Corinthians 13 at least once a week. Third, above all, see to it that your own heart basks in the light and warmth of God's love. Like begets like. The more you are truly occupied with the unwearying, unfailing, unfathomable love of Christ to you, the more will your heart be drawn out in love to those who are His. A beautiful illustration of this is found in the fact that the particular apostle who wrote most upon brotherly love is he who leaned upon the Master's bosom. The Lord grant all requisite grace to both hearer and writer, than whom none more needs to heed them, to observe these rules to the praise of the glory of His grace and to the good of his dear people. Arthur Pink Study number five, Conviction of Sin This comprehends knowledge and assent. It comprehends the knowledge of what the Scripture speaks against sin and sinners, and that the Scripture so speaks is the Word of God. It comprehends a sincere assent to the verity of Scripture and some knowledge of ourselves, particularly of our guilt and its consequences. This conviction comprehends not only knowledge and assent, but sensibility. God works on the heart as well as on the head. Both were corrupted and out of order. The principle of new life, therefore, quickens both. The knowledge which is merely theoretical never suitably moves the affections. The doctrines of religion produce in the understanding of an unrenewed soul but a superficial apprehension and, therefore, can produce in the heart but small sensibility. As hypocrites may know many things, but nothing with the clear apprehensions of an experienced man. So may they be slightly affected. To view in the map of the gospel the precious things of Christ and his kingdom may slightly affect us. But to thirst for and drink of the living waters and to be heir of that kingdom must needs work another kind of sensibility. The great things of sin, of grace, and Christ and eternity, which are of weight, one would think to move a rock, shake not the heart of the carnal professor. It is true, some soft and passionate natures may have tears at command, when one that is truly gracious hath none. Yet is this Christian with dry eyes more solidly apprehensive and more deeply affected than the other is in the midst of his tears. And the weeping hypocrite 
will be drawn to his sin again by a trifle, which the groaning Christian would not be hired to commit by crowns and kingdoms. The following are some of the things of which sinners are convinced by the Spirit of God. Number one. They are convinced of the evil of sin. The sinner is made to know and feel that sin which was his delight is indeed a loathsome thing, a breach of the righteous law of the Most High God, dishonorable to him and destructive to the soul. He was wont to marvel what made men raise such an outcry against sin or what harm it was for a man to take a little forbidden pleasure. He saw no such heinousness in it that Christ must needs die for it, and most of the world be eternally tormented in hell on account of it. He thought this was somewhat hard measure and greater punishment than could possibly be deserved by a little fleshly liberty or worldly delight, by the neglect of Christ, His word or worship, by a wanton thought, a vain word, a dull duty, or a cold affection. But now his views are changed. God hath opened his eyes to see the inexpressible vileness of sin, which satisfies him of the reasonableness of all this. Number two, they are convinced of their misery. He who before read the threatenings of God's law as men do the stories of foreign wars or as they behold the wounds and the blood in a picture which never makes him smart or fear, now finds it is his own story, and he perceives that it is his own doom. And if he found his name written in the curse or heard that law say as Nathan, Thou art the man, the wrath of God seemed to be but as a storm to a man in a dry house or as the pains of the sick to the healthy bystander. But now he finds the disease is his own and feels the smart of the wounds in his own soul. In a word, he finds himself a condemned man, that he is dead and damned in point of law and that nothing was wanting but the mere execution to make him absolutely and irrecoverably miserable. Whether you call this a work of the law or gospel, yet sure I am, it is a work of the Spirit wrought in some measure in all the regenerate. And as some do judge it unnecessary bondage, Yet it is beyond my conception how he should come to Christ for pardon that did not first find himself guilty and condemned, or for life that never felt himself dead. They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Yet I deny not that some gracious souls may scarcely perceive and others scarcely remember this work of humiliation, the discovery of the remedy as soon as the misery, must needs prevent a great part of the trouble, and make the distinct effect on the soul to be with much more difficulty discerned. 
Nay, the actings of the soul are so quick and often so confused that the distinct order of these workings may not be apprehended or remembered at all. And perhaps the joyful apprehensions of mercy may make the sense of misery the sooner forgotten. Number three. They are convinced of the vanity and insufficiency of the creature. Every man is naturally an idolater. Our hearts turned from God in our first fall, and ever since the creature has been our God. When God should guide us, we guide ourselves. When He should be our sovereign, we rule ourselves. The laws which He gives us, we would correct. And if we had the making of them, we would have made them otherwise. When we should depend on Him for our daily mercies, we would rather keep our stock ourselves and have our fortune in our own hands. When we should stand at His disposal, we would be at our own. When we should submit to His providence, we usually quarrel with it, as if we knew better what is good for us than He, and how to dispose of all things more wisely. Thus we are naturally our own idols, but down falls this day gone when God once renews the soul. It is the great business of that great work to bring the heart back to God himself. He convinces the sinner that the creature of itself can neither be his God to make him happy, nor yet his Christ to recover him from his misery and restore him to God who is his happiness. This God does not only by his word, but by his providence also, because words seem but wind and will hardly take off the raging senses. He makes his rod to speak and continue speaking till the sinner hear and learn by it this great lesson. This is the great reason why afflictions so ordinarily concur in the great work of conversion. When a sinner makes honor his God, and God shall cast him into lowest disgrace, or bring him that idolized his riches into a condition wherein they cannot help him, what a powerful help is here to this conviction. When a man that made pleasure his God, whether ease or sports, or mirth or company, or gluttony or drunkenness or whatsoever, a ranging eye, a curious ear, a raging appetite or a lustful heart to desire, and God should take these from him or turn them all into gall and wormwood, what a help is here to this conviction. When God shall cast a man into a languishing sickness and inflict wounds and anguish on his heart and stir up against him his own conscience, and then, as it were, take him by the hand and lead him to credit, to riches, to pleasure, to company, to sports, or whatsoever was dearest to him, and say, Now, 
try if these can help thee. Can these heal thy wounded conscience? Can they support thy tottering frame? Can they keep thy departing soul in thy body? Will they prove to thee eternal pleasures or redeem thy soul from eternal flames? Cry aloud to them and see whether these will now be unto thee instead of God and his Christ. Oh, how this works with the sinner when sense itself acknowledges the truth and even the flesh is convinced of the creature's vanity and our very deceiver is now undeceived. Now he despises his former idols and calls them all miserable comforters. He chides himself for his former folly and pities those that have no higher happiness. Number four. They are convinced of the absolute necessity, the full sufficiency and the perfect excellency of Jesus Christ. This conviction is not by mere argumentation, but also by the sense of our desperate misery, as a man in famine is convinced of the necessity of food, or as a man that has heard his sentence of condemnation is convinced of the necessity of pardon, or as a man that lies in prison for debt is convinced of the necessity of a surety to discharge it. Now the sinner finds himself in another case than ever he was aware of. He feels an insupportable burden upon him and sees that there is none but Christ can take it off. He perceives that he is under the wrath of God and that the law proclaims him a rebel and an outlaw and that none but Christ can make his peace. He feels the curse lie upon him and upon all he has and that Christ alone can make him blessed. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.